Welcome to Shop Talk Live, Fine Woodworking Magazine's bi-weekly podcast. I'm senior web producer Ed Pernick, and joining me today is special projects editor Asa Christiana. What's happening, Ed? Not much. Matt's on the road. Mike's on the road. It's just the two of us. I think Matt and Mike are together, and you and I are together. Yeah. Cue the music. <laughs> the romantic. Um, the romantic theme. Strings. Um, so, as always, uh, spread the word to your fellow woodworkers. If you like this podcast, stop by our iTunes page, leave a comment, maybe a five-star rating. You can even go to our iHeartRadio page and uh, leave a comment there or follow us. So, um, to start things off today, I've got two topics. Uh, the first one concerns uh, something uh, that was brought up on the last podcast involving insect-infested wood. Um, we got a, an email from this guy. You weren't on this podcast episode, Asa, but we had gotten an email from a guy who had bought some supposedly kiln-dried wood on Craigslist. There's the big alarm bell right there. Yeah. Craigslist. Um, and uh, it turned out to be loaded with beetles. And uh, If you do a keyword search on wood and Craigslist, that's probably not a, you, you might not find lumber. Um, Keep going. True. Uh, I'll just... I'll just go right over that. Blow right past that. Um, but anyhow, uh, so he gets this wood. He notices it's got bugs in it, and he was looking for ideas as to how to get rid of the bugs. So, you know, there were all these ideas batted around. One guy uh, had said, hey, what if, you, um, what if you just tented the whole thing and hooked it up to your car exhaust? Um, then we talked about tenting the whole thing and bug bombing the bejesus out of it. Um, there were all sorts of interesting ways to kill these bugs. We've heard so many ideas about how to kill bugs in wood. I wonder if people just sort of watch episodes of The Sopranos and then come up with ways, you know, whatever Polly Walnuts would do. Yeah, they come up with ways to off the bugs. Like maybe you take <laughs> your piece of lumber down to the Pine Barrens and ask it to get out of the car, <laughs> and then you put a couple slugs into it. Literally slugs, that, insects. Oh, that's true. Yeah. And it would literally be slugs, and it would still work. Or you take it on your boat. You know, yeah, take for it a out fishing on the trip, boat. Yep. throw it overboard. The problem with that is that it would float inevitably, so that's, <clears throat> that doesn't work so well. But uh, yeah. so I, I got an email. There's so many ways. I mean, you can put your wood, your wood in the oven, you can put the lumber, and, you know, it, there's we've heard so many different things. And really, yeah, they all sound like high crimes and misdemeanors. Well, I, I got a phone message from a guy uh, named Jim Mitchell, and I, I wasn't able to call him back just because it's been... Well, it's always uh, crazy here, but so I thought that I would do Jim some justice and um, share what he had to say. He he basically said, well, what what if you just vacuum bagged the wood and sucked all the air out of it and let those suckers suffocate? And yeah. what first came to my mind was you'd need a big, vac- big, very expensive vacuum bag. Yeah. I think just come up behind the piece of lumber with like a plastic bag and just stretch it over the lumber and and it wriggles for a while, you know what yeah, I mean? And a then, piano wire. Right. It's awkward at first. This yeah. is really just not like a, any kind of a topic. thick plastic bag. So, but then I thought, well, all right, so vacuum bag is obviously out of the question, too expensive, right? And then I thought, uh, well, what if you did just tent it and hermetically seal it with tape and just let it sit there for a day or two? Yeah, you could cut off its oxygen supply, kind of the way you put Vaseline or peanut butter over a tick and supposedly it right. backs out. I think that has worked for people. Um, but I wonder how much oxygen these tiny bugs really need and whether or not you'd have to leave it in there for, for a year. A year <laughs> because, a, you know, who knows, a, a cubic, a cup full of oxygen might be a lifetime supply yeah, for totally. a powder post beetle. I don't know. So I just wanted to, you know, Jim, I did get your phone call. 
I just um I just avoid yeah. stuff with bugs in it. it. You know, there's a lot there's telltale signs, you can see powder, you know, you can actually hear it. I've brought pieces of wood in um from the fire pile outside. Uh, onto the little rack next to the fireplace, and then you hear little scritchy, scratchy Ew. sounds inside oh, that's it. Gross. It's like let's smooth that back outside. So, uh, and also you can see like a powder post beetle will leave a little trail of powder, yeah. a little pile of powder outside the hole um, that they're working in. Yeah, I just avoid all that sort of stuff. But kiln drying, if it's truly kiln dried, will with high heat should yeah. kill off uh, most of that stuff. It could be the stuff he bought wasn't really. A couple things I would suggest not buying on Craigslist. Wood, certainly, but um, you got to be careful with couches, uh, upholstered items. <laughs> you know how to introduce bed bugs into your... This was particularly a problem in New York. When oh, I yeah. lived in New York, people yeah. were always getting, like, mattresses and stuff off of Craigslist. Not good. You could... I mean, you could... Craigslist, you could probably find hardwood lumber on Craigslist. It's just like like anything, you know? True. Um, yeah. So, and then uh, the other thing I wanted to bring up was... We got we had a really funny, particularly funny comment on our iTunes page, and normally I read these at the end of the show, but this one was so well done that I thought I'd bring it up at the top of the show. Um, I, I feel like one of those um, morning DJs, uh, you know, like six minutes before the top of the hour, 22 minutes before the end of the hour, and uh, we're about halfway through the tip of the hour or whatever it is. I hear Corolla make fun of that all the time. But anyhow, um, so here's the comment. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to find out the name of the guy who left this. I don't have the guy's name, unfortunately, but he says, if this show were back to the future, Ed would be George McFly. Matt would be Biff. Mike would be Doc Brown and Asa would be Flea, Michael Balzeri. I don't remember Flea. I don't remember Flea either, but, um, Ed is constantly getting flack from Matt. Mike is always a fountain of information, and Asa is constantly trying to dare everyone to woodwork like him. Seriously, <laughs> this show is great. I'd say this is my favorite woodworking podcast. I really enjoy the different sections of Hands Down, blah, 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 lots of fawning. Um, no, 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 thank you. Um, so I, uh, I don't know what to make of being labeled as George McFly. I, I, I would hope to be George McFly Jr. George McFly is awesome. He's the heart of the movie, and he's he's got he's just all heart. And you know he's awkward and doesn't fit in. He's a lot. He's just like you. No oh, thanks. <laughs> and and Matt doesn't do much better being Biff. Quite Biff is the worst. No, I know. But, Flea, but I don't know who Flea is. So Flea might be the worst. Please leave a comment on the blog post for this. I don't talk remember Flea in part one. Maybe Flea is. Maybe Flea's in part two or part three. I, I think I have a feeling he's a part two. Um, so anyhow, uh, enough with this nonsense. Let's get into what we're here to do, and that's answer questions. The first one came from Dan, and Dan wrote, I just finished reading another article in a woodworking magazine singing the praises of hide glue. While cruising through the furniture aisles in various antique shops, however, I found an astonishing number of rickety, dark old pieces. When I looked closer at the joints to see if I could disassemble and re-glue them, I kept seeing crystallized hide glue. Lots of crystallized hide glue. Sometimes gobs of hard old PVA glue where poor attempts were made to repair old joints. So if high glue crystallizes as it ages and loses its adhesive properties, why would all these modern furniture makers keep touting its usefulness? Is there a conspiracy I'm unaware of? Is there a vegan version? Potato skin glue? Well, you definitely want to get gluten-free uh, high glue, glue. gluten-free, because we all know what gluten uh, can do to you. I wonder if most people who are gluten-free actually know what gluten is. Anyway, let's move past that. But... Um, I I don't know exactly what's happening when a gob of sort of hide glue squeeze out sort of does what he's talking about where it sort of seems to crystallize. But I do know that hide glue has been in antiques and 
in many antiques and not failed for many centuries um, if the joints were well done and the glue was properly applied. What happens to gobs of squeeze-out is a separate issue, and it probably doesn't have anything to do with the structural integrity of those joints. He's probably also looking at a lot of joints that um, were poorly repaired or were poorly done to start with, and people tend to use try to use any glue to fill gaps, and it doesn't work. The the only you know epoxy is really the only thing that fills mm-hmm. gaps and create and maintains its structural integrity. I'll stop saying that now. And uh, so there's nothing inherently wrong with hide glue. Now, if you're going to use it now, there's a bunch of good reasons to use it. Um, don't worry. If you use it properly, don't worry about it failing in 200 years because it'll be fine. Mm-hmm. Um, and if it ever does, um, one of the benefits is uh, heat and moisture will cause it to come apart even two or 300 years later. And so it can be repaired. But anytime you repair a joint, of course, you've got to um, sort of make sure that you're not ask, trying to ask the glue to fill big gaps. So you may have to add wood to that joint or whatever to get the real tight glue lines that you need for any glue to work. But if you're going to use hide glue now, there's you got two options. Um, oh, the another great benefit of it, it has a... Um, well, the other big, another benefit of it is that it is slippery. So in certain assemblies that it's much slip, more slippery than other glues, certain assemblies that are hard to bring together, it's kind of a nice lubricant. It brings them mm-hmm. together well. Another benefit is if you use the hot kind, the kind that you melt down in a glue pot, that it smells like uh, a little bit faintly of roadkill. So if you like that, oh yeah, that's great if you're into that. If you have nice memories of the highway and Ugh. being out on the road, we'll get into that later. But um, I would recommend actually for most people that they use a hide glue that's already liquefied, um, liquid hide glue. It's called. It's basically liquid at room temperature. Uh, old hide glue, which is made from animal uh, skins mm-hmm. uh, and bones, I think animal matter. Um, it is uh, hard and like it turns into beads or whatever. Uh, it hardens at room temperature. That's why you have to heat it in a glue pot. But you can get hide glue that they add basically urea to to uh, make it um, liquid at room temperature. And a really good quality of that stuff is uh, called old brown glue. You can look it up on the yeah, Tim Rousseau uses it a lot. It's fantastic. It's made by a guy called Pat Edwards. W. Patrick Edwards out in San Diego, and uh, he'll sell it to you. I think it's carried at a few woodworking retailers. And the great thing about it is you don't have to have a glue pot. It stays liquid at um, room temperature. Therefore, it has a higher, a longer open time. In other words, it's not going to harden up. Like mm-hmm. normal high glue starts hardening up quicker because as it cools, it hardens. But this stuff is more like a normal glue, and you can squirt it out of a glue bottle just like normal glue. And to make it a little bit more viscous, a little bit more watery and easier to use, you just stick it in, you know, sort of some warm water, a little pot of, like warm, a pot water. of warm water. Yeah, just sort of sit it in yeah. there. Um, and it's a wonderful glue to use. So um, the problems that this guy is seeing, I don't think are inherent problems with high glue. Uh, what what you do, it's a little like, it's a natural material though. So just like shellac, you really want to know the freshness date um, of your high glue, whether uh when you're buying it. So you want to get it from a real reputable uh, supplier. All right. Moving on. Jed. Jed, you wrote, I'm a bit reluctant to go ahead and make a shooting board. This reluctance stems from the question I have in my mind about how you get a nice, tight, 
trim on a piece of wood without also trimming the shooting board itself. Does the base of the shooting board have to be narrower than the gap between the edge of your plane blade and the actual side of the plane? Or possibly, do you use the new shooting board first without a piece of wood and allow the blade to cut a rabbit in the base of the shooting board? Remember that. Maybe I've missed it, but has this been discussed in an article in Fine Woodworking? I appear to be the only person on this planet that this confuses because I haven't seen it referenced before. I don't really understand how you can get a tight trim on your piece of wood without tear out on the back side. And if you put the wood's piece so close to the fence, aren't you also going to be trimming the, the shooting board with your plane? So, um, I can answer all these questions. Yeah. So, well, let's, let's, there's a back lot of questions packed into this. There's this. a lot. And let's, let's describe a shooting board for people who, um, you know, may, may not be as hand tooly and, um, have never used one or heard of one. So, yeah. So, a shooting board, um, and I actually don't, I haven't made one yet, but I have, uh, used other people's shooting boards before. Um, and I plan to make one now. I'm finally a true believer in them. Um, but a shooting board is, uh, I know Matt and Mike use them a lot. Yeah, Matt really too. loves them. Matt's I got love it. Matt's really into the art of perfecting his shooting board, and he's had he's gone through various iterations of it. But it's really a way, mostly to work on the end grain of a board, to trim it, to get it to perfect ninety, or or to trim it to a slight angle, or you can even make them that do miters. But all it is is a base. Like let's say you picture like a a three-quarter inch piece of MDF or plywood. On top of that, you put a slightly narrower piece of plywood. Let's say it's three-eighths inch thick. With a little hardwood Don't Don't, don't even go there yet. So all, right. all we've got is the base and then a slightly narrower piece on top of it. That creates a track over on one side for your hand plane to lie on its side and slide on by. Then the work piece goes up on top against a fence that's at right angles to that track and that lets you slide a hand plane by in a very controlled fashion by the end of a board which is up against that fence um it's the simplest thing in the world now what this guy is specifically asking is if my uh if my work piece is up against the fence and the hand plane how come the hand plane you know if isn't going to um, uh, tear off the back of the board. And the, the truth is, even with that fence there backing up the cut as you push by, the, you can get some breakout on the back edge of that board. So what I've seen people do, and I was just with a guy uh, do shooting an article with Jerry Curry in Maine. He's, he's got the world's simplest shooting board. It's going to be coming up in an article in Fine Woodworking number 242 about uh, making drawers. Um, he's got, the, and we'll have a little plan there for a shooting board. It's coming up in a couple issues. It's the world's simplest shooting board. Um, he, what he does on his work pieces is, uh, puts a little bit of a chamfer on the back edge, just the tiniest amount, about the amount he's going to take off when he's planing mm -hmm. it, just to avoid that breaks breakout. that back. Yeah. Edge. So the, the other question here is if you've got the hand plane, picture a hand plane and it's lying on its side and it's running in that track. The blade is going to stick out from the base of the hand plane a little bit. So the blade is actually going to cut into your shooting board a little bit. Mm -hmm. You picture the edge of that track, the top layer of plywood. The, it's, that's a thin layer, like three-eighths. The, the blade is going to partly 
cut into that and partly not cut into that because the blade's sticking out from the base. And you know, on the outside of a hand plane, there's that little bit of metal where the on blade... On either side of the iron. Either side of the blade or iron. As opposed to a uh, rabbit, you know, a rabbit plane, plane where the blade goes the all the way to the edges. Area. Yep. So it's going to... So if you can picture it, that little protrusion of blade is going to cut a slightly deeper channel. A little rabbit. A little of. tiny mini rabbit. Yeah. For, make its own clearance in your... So he, he answered his own track. question there. Yeah, it will do that. It will cut that little extra track down the side. And the way to prevent blowout on the backside is uh, the easiest way to do that of your workpiece is to uh, make a tiny chamfer there. But it, But a shooting board can be really the world's simplest gizmo it's great but once really you great. cut that that rabbit so usually the you have you like you said you have a base that's let's say it's 14 inches wide and then you have another piece of mdf or plywood on top of that that's maybe uh 11 11 inches wide mm-hmm. and on the the edge of that board usually you put a hardwood strip and that's what you're cutting you on a little rabbit into. you don't have to put a hardwood strip there you can just have two pieces of plywood it's but fine. Here's what I'm getting at is you cut that rabbit. Yep. Once that rabbit's cut, you're good. It's, it's cut. Good. It's fine. And now it has the, clearance. Right. Now the hand plane is kind of matched to your shooting board. Yeah, I mean, if you ever stick the blade out a little extra far, it's going to cut it a little right. deeper, but the fact that or if, or if your blade is not sticking out as far, it won't stick into that rabbit as much, but it doesn't really matter. The shooting board is just a contraption meant to hold one bork piece at a right angle to your plane, which is lying on its side. Um, the cool thing about a shooting board, though, is like when you're fitting a drawer front, um, how let's, you know, drawer cases are hardly ever square. I know Ed's furniture is always <laughs> perfectly square. <laughs> but uh-huh. to really have a fine gap around a drawer front, let's say. You fit the drawer front to the opening. You fit the front, you fit the piece to the opening. And um, the shooting board makes that super easy. If it's a little something other than 90, you just put a little piece of paper or a business yeah, card it. or something between the workpiece and the fence down at the other end, and it shifts the workpiece out just a little bit. You can use that for it. They're really fantastic for fitting, like you make humidors, you know, to fit one part. Yeah. To That's fit how the I liner. Fit all the liner pieces. Yeah, to fit the liner pieces yep. in. Yep. So, anyway, shooting well, boards. Wonderful. Yeah. Great. I'm, I'm, I'm I about love to them. make one. Um, so let's move into our first segment of the day. This is yet another new segment that Asa conceived of only yesterday. Exclusive. And we're calling it Road Stories. Now here's the deal. Um, fine woodworking editors are the best traveled woodworking editors in the business. There are lots of crazy, weird, wacky, wild road stories. Some of them are too explicit for Shop Talk Live. Others, we can get by talking about. So uh, every once in a blue moon, we're going to mention a few of these road stories. So uh, Asa, since you conceived of this segment, I'll let you go first. (laughs) Well, the first one I thought about, it's true. uh, We have the greatest experiences on the road, and sometimes the experiences on the road aren't that great. I mean, a lot of it is slogging a 50-pound light kit through airports and onto rental car shuttle buses and stuff. And having TSA agents think you constantly have a bomb in your luggage? Cut it off for one second. Let me just... Having TSA agents constantly think you're trying to smuggle a bomb on board because of all the wires in your luggage? Exactly. But, a, but occasionally, and probably quite often, we have really remarkable experiences on the road. Uh, just go into the middle of nowhere or the middle of somewhere to visit somebody who... Woodworkers tend to be really interesting people and lead interesting lives. And um, 
the first one I thought about was the first time I went to go visit Brian Boggs, uh, who's a real famous chair maker that a lot of people know about. Um, he was down, he's in Asheville, uh, North Carolina now, yep. but he was in uh, Berea, Kentucky, which is a cool place if you ever get to visit it um, in the Appalachian mountain range. Um, so we went down there because Fine Woodworking gave three editors uh, a week off to go take a class with Brian, which was a really generous thing of them to do. And so we all uh, traveled down there years ago. And I remember the first thing, you know, Brian, like a lot of artists and woodworkers, he marches to the beat of a different drummer. So the first thing when we showed up, you know, we were going to try to build his famous ladderback chair, which is a super challenging chair to build. So we were like raring to go. Brian had told us how hard it was going to be to get it done in a week and all this stuff. So we were like, yeah, let's roll. Plus we're from Connecticut. So we're a little bit, you know, tightly wound. And Brian, the first thing Brian said was, no, 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 we got to move this piano over to my mom's house. (laughs) (laughs) So we got in the back of the world's most... This was only mentioned... Upon your arrival. Upon arrival. Nice. We got in the back of this super beat-up pickup truck with an old stand-up piano rocking back and forth, and we went on these really bumpy back roads of Berea to get out to his mom's house. safe. And we were sitting on the edges of the thing trying to stop it from tilting and- Oh, my God. And killing one of you? And killing us or ruining the piano. We were real nervous. We are bumping along these back roads- and bringing a piano to some guy's mom's house. And I just thought, this is it. This is what I signed up Consummate for. Consummate you know? professionals. No, I just thought, this is the greatest. <laughs> it was the greatest. It was like the greatest moment. And also, I hadn't really been to the South very much. I was really ignorant about just other than going to Florida. I hadn't spent any time in the South. And if you don't go to a region, you don't realize how rich and varied. Since then, I've been to lots of places in the South, and I realize it's far from the one thing that a lot of Northerners think it is, just like the North is not the one thing a lot. It's not all New York City like other people think. But um, it was just a great, it was like my greatest first experience in the South, and it was a great experience with Brian, and I don't know, we, we we just, it was the best way to kick off that week down a dusty road and Where's your chair? Backwards, Berea. The chair is at home. It's my computer chair. It's the most comfortable chair in the house. Huh? And cool. it's in front of my computer. It's awesome. Did you meet his mom? Yeah. Yep. She was a sweet lady. <laughs> yep. It was great. Oh, my God. So, wait, wait. How did you get the piano onto and off of the pickup I don't truck? remember. I think we might have just lifted it. Oh, there my God. There were four or five of us. Jeez. Yeah. All right. Well, so mine, uh, everybody at work knows... Uh, this story. I blogged about it once a long time ago, but I thought um, I could do the whole story, and uh, and it's a good one. So I thought it was good for the uh, debut road stories segment. So um, the first video workshop I ever produced when I came here uh, was with Garrett Hack, and it was for his uh, spinner table. I think it's, as a video workshop, I think it's called an elegant side table or something like that. But um, I uh, I traveled up to his place in Vermont with a video producer named John, and it just so happened that at the time, um, my wife was over eight months, or about eight months pregnant. Um, she had three weeks to go before delivery, so this was going to be like my last travel at all before settling down for, I figured, you know, two weeks before delivery date, due date, I'll be, you know, camped at home, right? Sure, you're fine. All Everyone good. knows where this story's going. So we had, uh, yeah, so we had... Um, 
arranged for a backup plan, a good friend of ours, in case, you know, anything happened, but nothing was going to happen. Uh, so I get there, and, uh, you know, on a Sunday evening, and we show up at Garrett's on Monday, and uh, we're working, and, and Garrett's joking around that, oh, you watch, you, you realize your wife's going to go into labor while you're up here, and, and I, you know, I just, I didn't even think about it. I was like, well, whatever. So we finished the first day of shooting, and, uh, you know, it was a nerve-wracking day for me because it was my first video workshop series, and then we get back to the hotel, you know, we eat dinner, uh, me and John, my videographer, and uh, we go to bed, and uh, 3 a.m., my phone rings, and my wife said, you know, there's, there's something weird going on, and I don't know what it is, and she described some symptoms, and I told her, I was like, well, you know, it can't help to, to get, uh, you know, just checked out, make sure everything's okay with you, you know, I really, I had completely deluded myself, like, everything is fine, just, you know, let me, I'll call the doctor for you and see what he suggests, and I call the doctor and describe all these symptoms, and he says, well, you know, you should take her down to the hospital just to have them run, like, a sonogram or ultrasound or something, you know, and make sure that everything's, you know, okay. All right. So I call her back, and then I call our contact, and I say, can you pick up Kathleen and, and bring her to the hospital? They're going to check her out. Sorry to bother you at 3 in the morning, you know. They get to the hospital, and I, I decided, uh, I knew that she'd be going back home that night. It was not a big deal. But I figured just to be safe, I'm going to take a shower to wake myself up, you know. So I, I take a quick shower, and I just zipped my suitcase shut just in case, although I was not going anywhere. And uh, about 4 o'clock in the morning, the phone rings again, and her water had broken. She was in labor, and I didn't know what the heck to do because at this point I was like, I don't know, two and a half hours away from home. At least. So I, I knock on John's door. Three and a half. I knock on John's door, and... Uh, I told him, well, here's what's going on. Um, feel free to try and finish the whole shoot on your own. I don't care what you do. I'm having a baby, so I'm out of here. So I went to the truck stop across from the hotel. I bought two packs of no-dos, a big thing of coffee, and I drove like a bat out of hell. Now, here's the interesting part. I was going down 91 south at about 90 miles an hour most of the way, and I was driving in the breakdown lane. I was passing people in the breakdown lane on the left side of the... I was do breaking every law you could possibly imagine. 91 is the big north-south route that goes all the way through New England, all the way up to Canada. So I, uh, I figured, well, you know, if I get pulled over, that would actually probably be a good thing because the cops will help me, you know, like clear the way to get yeah. me to where like I'm going. Like they do right? in the movies. Exactly. So... I didn't get pulled over by a single cop, and I was kind of bummed out about that. <laughs> and uh, so, but I'm, I'm making good time, you know. And then I hit 95 in Southern Connecticut um, uh, to get to Stamford, which is where I had to go. And uh, death. that's when, like, the timing just it coincided with rush morning hour. traffic, rush yeah. hour. And at that time of day, if you know 95 in Connecticut, if you're going south on 95 in Connecticut on a weekday morning, that's towards New York City, and you're screwed. Only beat by a couple places in the country, maybe Atlanta and L.A. for being the craftiest a parking lot. commute. Yep. So I had all the time been calling my wife back and forth on the cell phones and stuff, and uh, long story short, I missed the delivery by about 20 minutes. Oh! So she delivered. It was it was with, yeah. It was like three and a half you hours. Know, she didn't need, start to finish. She, they don't. They don't need us. You know. I know, but no. I know. Um, but it was. But it you know, sucks. And you busted your butt. But oh, I don't care. And in the, in the, in the, at the end of the day, I realized that it's better that she had this really fast, easy delivery. Yeah. And and kudos to her because she didn't use any um, medicines or pain. She's nothing. Tough. She did everything natural. You know. Done. Life yeah. might have been doing you a little favor there because some things you see during that process, you cannot unsee. Oh, I'm up 
by the head in that situation. Oh, you do? You stay away from I, the business end? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, that's that's. I'm not good with <laughs> blood and guts. Oh, okay. All right. Oh, yeah. No way. Not going to happen. Um, right. But, uh, yeah, so that's that's the... Uh, Funny road stories. Yeah, Garrett, I've had a lot of good times up at Garrett's farm. It's a really idyllic place. I can remember uh, doing photo shoots. Sometimes when you shoot a whole process, especially a project no matter how many different versions of the thing you have ready to go, uh, you still end up having to wait sometimes for them to complete a step. And his, I can remember going out and just spending a quiet hour while he got to the next step, just feeding chickens or patting his horse in the barn or sitting out by the pond. And, uh, it's a beautiful place on planet earth. Um, yeah, just uh, took me on a super romantic sled ride. I heard about horse that horse-drawn sled ride. <laughs> yeah, with his, his with pile. his draft horse. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. So, uh, in, it was snowy. It was snowy. It was snowing. Yeah, and uh, it was it's like romantic. A, just... It was totally romantic. Of course, my wife was uh, <laughs> getting ready to give birth to our baby. Yeah. Um, oh, it was that same learned. week? It was. It was that. It was that day because all this happened on Monday. It was the first day of the wow. shoot. So at the end of the day, he's like, "Oh, I want to show you my wood piles." And he, yeah. Got the horse, jazz the horse ready, and uh, took us into the woods. So th- awesome. So there you go, a couple of fine woodworking road stories. Well, um, let's move on to another question. This one's com- coming from Evan, and Evan writes, I have always struggled with finishing my projects, and after listening to your podcasts and reading your reviews on wipe-on finishes, I decided to give water locks a try. After investing in the finish, I read the can and directions from their website where the water locks makers recommend brushing on the finish. So, should I brush? Or wipe on the finish. If you wipe it on, how many coats do you apply? And can you wipe on the high-gloss finish? I noticed it's much thicker. Um, oh, I guess I wasn't familiar with Waterlocks makes a higher-gloss finish. I'm not familiar I, with I, that I, either. I just use the standard one. I forget what it's called, like sealer and finish or yeah. something. The great thing about Waterlocks is the process uh, that they make it by, it's a, I believe it is a wiping varnish, basically. It will as opposed to a, a sort of an oil, uh, a thin kind of an oil finish. Um, what that means is it's got solids that um, it can t- you can either apply it really thinly with a cloth or a rag, or you could brush it on, which puts on a thicker coat. And either way, it'll cure. An oil, a true oil finish won't do that. It'll cure to a hard film, just like um, polyurethane Poly, or yeah. anything like that. So you can brush it or wipe it. Uh, in any of its forms, I believe. And um, and then, the, so either one of those is correct. And the best article about how to apply it was Mike Pekovich's article on how to uh, uh, do a, a wipe-on uh, yep. oil varnish. Was that the, the last varnish. finish you'll ever need, I think? Yeah, was the I think title. it was called The Last Finish You'll Ever Need. Um, the key thing with uh, most of these finishes is uh, prepping the surfaces well ahead of time and then sanding between coats. Yep. With fine sandpaper. If you all do that. Easy enough. A um, little steel wool at the end. Coat of wax. Done. Good to go. All right. Well, next question comes from JGC, and he writes, Hi, guys. I really appreciate your show. A friend recently asked me to build him a three-inch thick oak front door for his log cabin, and I'm a little apprehensive with respect to the amount the door will expand and contract throughout the seasons. Any tips on how to compensate for this? Um, this makes me think that... He's thinking of making a big old slab um, because traditional door construction methods uh, 
rail and style. Yeah, rail and style. Right, frame and panel. Yep, they'll they account for movement, so your movement isn't an issue. Um, so that leads to my answer, which is you need to pick a traditional construction method. Another one is board and batten. That's a great time tested one where you have an you have a number of thin boards all lined up in a row, but there's a gap between them all, and then you screw battens across them with usually a diagonal piece to kind of hold them in place Big and Z. turn the, turn them into a door exactly. Um, and there's gaps built in between the pieces, and it's the and that allows the 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 um, seasonal wood movement in all those boards, but. Uh, the battens are what keep the door, give the together, door its yeah. integrity and keep it together. Or you make a big giant uh, frame with two big panels or three panels or right. whatever panel array you want. And the panels are floating. But if he's considering just gluing up a big, huge slab and using that for a door, I wouldn't do it. If you build a traditional rail and style door with floating panels in there and whatnot, mm -hmm. is it still, um, because, you know, the tolerances in a door are very tight, right? Yep. I'm wondering for oak, would it be a good idea to make sure you use quarter sawn stock because it's a little bit more, a little bit more stable? Oh, definitely. Yeah, quarter sawn or or rift sawn. You know, the more vertical the grain, the when, rings when are. You're looking at the end grain. When you're looking at the end grain, the more vertical those rings are, the the more stable any board will be. So um, you don't want to, those rails and styles in general in any frame and panel thing, whether it's a door or. Uh, Mostly it's doors, I guess. <laughs> Whether it's a door, a door, or a door. Or a door. Or, or even a door. Uh, you would want... People use frame and panel for case sides, too, and other things. But you would want... Uh, uh, you. I think it looks better also to have straight grain in those yeah. pieces. So it's kind of a double whammy. It's it's looks, looks and wood movement. Um, yeah. Uh, we had a good article by a guy. I think his last name was Finn. Josh Finn, I believe, is his name. Oh, and yeah. It was how to yeah. make... Uh, F-I-N-N, and it was how to make um, wood doors in a normal wood shop. Because normally wood doors are done in a big millwork factory where they have big, huge shaper cutters that do those like kind of matching, almost like you would have a set like of matched... Like stick type Yeah, pieces. almost like you would have a set of little matched router bits to make a little cabinet door. Yeah. Well, doors are two and a half inches thick or whatever, so... Uh, those that those are big shaper cutters that act just like those little matched router bits, um, but you can do it um, with standard woodworking tools. Mm -hmm. um, and we had a really good article, like I said, I think by Josh Finn, and he showed you a range of doors that were possible and gave you some tips on installation and uh, a, a custom door to your home. It's a beautiful way to kind of announce that you know a furniture maker lives here. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I say that, but I, and I've always wanted to do one, but I haven't gotten off my butt and actually done it. I'm struggling through that now because our house has a, our house was built in 1900 and it has a distinctly craftsman feel to it. Oh, perfect! And it has the original uh, front door, nice, which is you know like six little square divided lights at the top, a lot of frame and panel stuff going on. Beautiful, but it's really leaky because all the joints are starting to come unglued and oh. come apart, and so the whole thing has to, and it's got like ten coats of paint on it. So I've been debating, like, well, do I really want to take this thing off, strip it all, then, you know, re-glue things, clamp it up, refit the door? It's like... You I, can try that. I'm not doing it. You can try that, but <laughs> you'll probably end up just wanting to make a new door that's all ship-shape and fits perfectly. I'm going to buy... I mean, and I you can, can match buy. the... You can match the... You can use the same hinge hardware and use yeah. and put, stick the hinges into the door jam and transfer that to the door that you make. And we'll talk later. I'll be honest. I'm I'm buying... 
a craftsman door already made and have it installed. Well, you can't. You can. You can also buy a pre-hung door that's already in its jam. That's what I'm doing, and I'm having them install it because I've got. I'd rather be working on my shop right now because I've been neglecting it. Too many projects, man. Um, that's what happens when you live in an old house. Yeah, but then the question, or you just live for with it for a while and don't be impatient. Well, I was thinking like, do I do I save the original door and keep it in the back of the garage, or do I, when I take it off and get a new door put in, do I take the whole thing apart, strip off the paint, and use that old growth? It's probably old growth, really tight grain fur. Oh, that'd be good. I say, I say, I say, wait, just wait, just live with. Ed's a bit of a perfectionist, hence the. the um, George McFly thing uh, <laughs> that he got dubbed with earlier. No, but I say just wait, and uh, when you're ready to take this project on, do it yourself. If you can live with the draft coming yeah. in and stuff like that, because it's an opportunity, you know? You may kick yourself later on. Just we'll saying. See. Well, let's move into the next segment of the day, and uh, this one's going to be all-time favorite technique of all time for this week. Um, so I, you know, I forgot to do my, where we, you know, uh, talk about our beloved, most favorite techniques. I forgot to do that whole thing. So what do you mean? What whole thing? I always do that thing. Like, you know, as I have the Romeo and Juliet theme playing. Like, oh yeah. Um, anyhow, whatever. Um, so, uh, all time favorite technique of all time for this week, Asa. Want me to go first? Mine's really boring, but it's amazing. Okay. Right, so it relates to the question about water locks. I was, I've been uh, finishing a ton of tabletops for this YMCA project I was talking about earlier where I'm doing some, just sort of some work, some free kind of donation sort of work for uh, a cause that I believe in. And um, How do you stretch your hand behind your back like that to pat yourself? I've really got my right arm really limbered up, so I'm able to, when I bring this up again and again in public, nice. I'm able to really reach back there and in case no one else gives me a pat. But... Um, no, uh, it's just, you know, I'm putting on coat after coat after coat of polyurethane, this stuff designed for floors to, so it's real durable for these tables. And, and even though I'm making 35 of these tabletops, um, it's just reminded me of the, the kind of foolproof process of sanding between coats. That's my all time favorite technique just for this week. Okay. Um, it's sanding between coats of finish. It really cures all ills, especially with a film finish like poly or this water locks or whatever. It's like no matter how poorly you put it on, um, each time you sand, like let's say you sand the surface to 150 or 200. Then you put on, you, you brush on a coat of whatever. Then you, you know, varnish, whatever it is, um, shellac. Uh, then you, the next, the first, that raises all the grain. And then at that point, I usually sand with 220 to knock the grain down. It doesn't, sanding block and- doesn't take much. You definitely use a sanding block with some kind of a, a hard sanding block with some kind of a soft surface cork. on it. Cork. Like cork, or I have one that's got like a foam layer on it. Um, but anyway, yeah. And then, you, uh, and then you hit it lightly just to knock that grain back down with 220. Then another coat of finish. Then at that point, you can sand with 320 kind of from then on out. Um, until the very last coat goes on, um, and at in it kind of guarantees an amazing, yeah. beautiful finish. Now it's boring, and put on some music or yeah. your or your shop talk live <laughs> podcast. Nice, and uh, but the beautiful thing is you get you end up with this buttery smooth 
result. Um, and there's really no shortcut. It's sort of one of those inconvenient woodworking truths. There's no shortcut, but it's pretty darn foolproof. I love it. Right on. Well, um, mine is, I, I, I don't think I've mentioned this one on a previous all-time favorite technique. I'm pretty sure I have not. If I did, though, feel free to ding me on this. But it's um, light, 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 and more light. So in the continuing evolution of my new workshop, um, I've been making a series of decisions um, that, you know, for finishes uh, that revolve around creating as much reflected light as I, I can get because I'm in a basement, like a lot of folks. So when I epoxied the floor, I chose like a really light gray epoxy for the floor so it would reflect a little bit of light. Um, and a lot of the, uh, I have like these built-in wooden shelves and drawers and things, um, like a, a at least a satin or a, like a semi-gloss uh, white uh, trim paint yeah. is going on all that. Um, fresh white paint on the ceiling and wall, like everything. I'm just... I'm just whiting everything out. <laughs> Makes a huge difference, yeah, right? Yeah, I let everything reflect. All Do my you notice that reflect. it's starting to make a difference now? Yeah, I saw a big difference. when. So when I started, when we bought the house, the floor was this old, uh, dingy, poured concrete floor that um, it was dark and dirty and just awful. And the first thing, uh, for anybody who wants to epoxy coat a basement floor, this this is super important. It's all in the prep work. Um, you have to clean it so you get a good bond. Yep. I, I, I mixed up some muriatic acid with some water, mm -hmm. and I got a scrub brush on a long pole, and I scrubbed the heck out of the floor, and then I neutralized the acid with baking soda and water, mm -hmm. and then I cleaned it again with you just water You know, they sell kits. I think they yep. sell acid etching kit kits that has all that stuff in, in the kit. I yeah, think you I think, can get it at Home Depot. I think acid etching, because um, they tell you to acid etch a concrete floor before yeah. you epoxy. Oh, that's a separate I think process. That's, I think it's muriatic acid. I think that's yeah. all it is. Yeah. Um, but, you know, basically I just cleaned the heck out of it. Yeah. And um, you want to make sure the floor's got some bite to it. Yeah. You know, my floor was not polished smooth or anything, so it was perfect. Um, and uh, I did notice a big difference after I epoxied the floor already. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the light reflecting on the old dingy, dirty floor. You don't realize nothing. how much those old wood, you know, plywood walls or... Um, or a dark oil-stained floor, what, how, what a light suck it is and what a light killer it is until you change it. Yeah. It's funny. People sometimes, you can't get enough light, really, honestly. I mean, people sometimes say, uh, how much light? You know, they have these complex calculations. I think you need enough light coming out of your shop that sometimes commercial jetliners will fly low <laughs> because they think that they might be at the, runway. the runway. That's how much light you need. The other thing I did was I... So our basement has all these recessed light fixtures in the ceiling. And I, uh, I popped them open to see what the manufacturer, usually they'll stamp like the maximum wattage bulb you can put in the fixture. And I, so I maxed out the wattage on every fixture. I just, I just want light. Yeah. Um, it's great. And, and for, you know, as you get older, you need more light, actually. You're not at that age yet. You're just a young buck. But, um, I've I've heard pretty consistently some from some of my You've friends. You've heard from some of your as, friends. Yeah, of course not me. Yeah, a friend of mine told me that uh, that you need more light as you get older. So you're going to be happy later that you make the investment now. Totally. Um, <clears throat> pardon me, I have a frog in my throat. Apparently. Uh, so let's get on to the next question. This one comes from Med. Um, and Med, I don't know if that's a nickname or not, but Med writes: Are Lee Nielsen hand planes really worth the cost? I'm a no, weekend. they're terrible. <laughs> Next a, question. I'm a weekend warrior and have a set of Stanley Bailey planes, numbers three through eight. All are flea market finds, but are in good shape. I was thinking about selling them and using the money to buy one or two Lee Nielsen models. Do they perform better than the Bedrocks? 
I have a four and six bedrock, which I have bought Hawk blades for, and they work great. Well, Matt, I think you just answered your own question with your last statement there. Yeah, they exactly. You have planes that you... He may, you know, people always wonder, do I have the best thing? You can kind of yeah. drive yourself crazy, yeah. even if what you're using is working wonderfully. Right. Like, oh, no, no, still this, I need a better, right. Uh, yeah. You could still think, like, maybe there's some level of woodworking nirvana that I haven't yet experienced. But the, so let us reassure you that the Lee Nielsen patterns, the, the stuff that Tom Lee Nielsen, uh, the, you know, when he, when he uh, uh, sort of uh, put the patterns for his own planes together, he was basing them largely on the bedrocks. So, um, the bedrock planes, which is a certain type of a certain generation of Stanley planes, uh, from I think around the turn of the century or so, the turn of the last century. But, um, yeah, those things. So that's what Lee Nielsen was shooting for when he designed his planes. Now, uh, so the bedrocks are wonderful planes. The key thing that distinguishes a bedrock plane is that you can have you you can have the uh, you, you don't. Uh, let me figure out how to say this. You you can adjust the frog while the blade is in the plane. Now, why is that good? It's because you adjust the frog forward and back to close the mouth up, and when you close the mouth around the blade, it it uh, it means that the front of the mouth is closer to the blade, which holds the chip down ahead of the blade and stops it from tearing out. So it's the the tighter the mouth, the less tear out. So. Um, being able to have that blade in place while you tighten the mouth, while you, you move the frog forward, on. you can see what's going on. On other planes, you have to pull the blade assembly out, and it's a little bit of trial error. You jimmy the frog forward, lock it back down, yeah. put the blade back in, take a look. This lets you kind of do it on the fly, which is nice. So if you wanted to take a rougher cut and open the mouth up a little bit, you can do that with the without moving the plane out. It's a really great convenience factor. And the bedrocks are just known for being beautifully manufactured. That said, if you buy an antique plane, which is what those are, um, it's a little bit of a crapshoot. Um, this med has got some that uh, are working great, so he probably got good ones. What you get with the Lee Nielsen is, I there's you know he's done some tweaks to to every part of the plane to ensure that it works. Yeah, one big thing is they're beautifully. They're, they're heavier. They're a lot heavier, which there's momentum when you're planing. They're heavier. They're a lot heavier than a lot of planes. They're, I think they're even a little bit heavier than the bedrock planes themselves. And all that mass and momentum is super great when you're pushing through uh, a plane, making a shaving. But what you get in our tool test, now I'm just speaking from the tests we've done, what you get with these Lee Nielsen planes is it's a wonderful thing when you can count on every surface to be machined and ground perfectly because what happens is every single component of that plane um, operates exactly the way it was intended. You know, a plane is only as good as the positive contact between every part of that plane, from the floor to the ceiling in that plane. So from where the sole touches the wood, that needs to be flat contact. Where the frog beds in the plane body, needs to be solid contact. How the chip breaker meets the back of the blade. How the blade meets the frog. How the cap the iron. Lever cap, rather. How the lever cap meets the chip breaker. Yeah. All those things. If all of those are flat to each other and solid, the whole thing is like a brick of cast iron that has no chatter in it, no flex, no nothing. And with a sharp blade, now all of a sudden, there's your woodworking nirvana. Now, you can get that from a bedrock for sure. Um but uh, you are buying an antique plane. Yes, yeah, so, so you got to you know, do a little bit of, little maybe, bit of work. Or you, you may or may not have to do any work. 
But um, I know what you're getting at though. Lee yeah. Nielsen, the only thing you have to do out of the box is just hone the blade. Hone the blade. Done. Yeah, done. Even the back of the blade is ground already yeah. for you. So, yeah, it's an amazing thing. It's you know you say two hundred and something bucks or three hundred for the for the bronze version of the of the number four uh, Lee Nielsen. But when you you when you use one with a sharp iron, and you really look at all the machining that's in there that's done here in the U.S., uh, it's a great value. But if he's got um, these bedrocks and Baileys that are working great for him, I I, I don't see the point in no. selling them and cashing in to get no. You know, you know what's fewer a good Lee thing? Nielsen's. You might go to a Lee Nielsen event, and and this is not to say Lee Nielsen's the only great plane out right. there on the market. Veritas and some others are making some amazing planes, but. You might go out to one of these Lee Nielsen events and use one of their planes that's been tuned up by their guys there at the event and see, does this feel different than what I have at home? They've been, Lee Nielsen's been holding sort of uh, customer contact events and demos all around the country at various cool shops and schools and stuff like that. So that'd be a good thing to look out for if you just want to satisfy that, that nagging doubt in the back of your mind. Right on. Well... Let's move on uh, from planes uh, to another question from Bill, who writes, I had a quick question for you. I'm building some speaker stands out of paddock. And Paduk. I, Paduk, okay. I, I never knew how to pronounce that. It's species. weird. It looks like paddock, but it's people say Paduk almost. Paduk? Yeah, anyway. Anyhow, he's building some speaker stands out of this um, tropical hardwood that I've apparently never been pronouncing correctly for the past 20 years, and have what looks like a nice surface after using a smoothing plane. Would you recommend sanding before applying finish or possibly a card scraper or nothing and just begin applying finish? Thanks for your help. So I think the crux to this question is, do you, if you get a glass smooth finish from your hand plane, from your smoothing plane, do you need to sand then afterwards? No. No, if you're it's a deal. happy with it. Now that surface may not be as great as he thinks once he finish kind of reveals a lot of things. So once things can look great and then all of a sudden you put finish on there and you notice tear out especially with a, with a uh, tropical wood like Paduk, or you notice um, that there are plane tracks on there. Um, at that point, if, it's like an, if he's putting an oil finish on there, he could go back and sand and level the surface and reapply the finish. Yeah. That would be fine. Um, so if he's not completely sure, I'd say pick an oil finish or something that's sort of repairable and redoable really easily that way. But no, it's a, what gets me here, I think, what I'm sniffing out a little bit, I'm catching a little whiff of, of the, uh, of the sorry <laughs> of the right and wrong, of the of the kind of like there's a right and a wrong way. Um, people rave about the hand plane finish, and then everyone sort of kills themselves to put a hand plane finish on everything. But the truth is, in most of our finishing tests, when you get done prepping that surface and you've applied the finish and you've sanded between coats, nobody can tell if it was prepped ultimately with sandpaper or if it was or if the last thing that touched it was a hand plane or, or you're the only person on earth that will ever you be just can't tell. tell it's indetectable we've done uh, we've done um test panels and mm. you just really couldn't tell so you know uh you know there is no right or wrong if you're happy with your hand plane surface you're it, it'd be surprising to me if you could get a hand plane surface with absolutely no evidence of planing like in under a finish. Usually, even if you camber the blade perfectly and do all that stuff, there's the slightest amount of plane tracks still there. And some people like that. They, they like that, that it looks hand-worked and mm. slightly imperfect. 
Um, and I agree, it can be really beautiful. So, but anyway, there's no right or wrong. There's a reason for sanding after. Yeah. What I do personally, I don't know what you do. Maybe you could say what you do, but what I do is I plane it as well as I can because a hand plane is just faster. It's faster for leveling the surface and prepping it. And then I use 220 usually if there's not any major tear out or anything. I usually hit it with 220 before finishing in order to get rid of the plane tracks. And that's my I do the same thing. surface I, prep process. I just usually start I think I usually start at like th- at like you know up, up in the threes, mm-hmm. um, which, so it takes a little longer. Yeah, um, but uh, yeah, and a sanding block, and I do it by hand yeah. after, I, and works great. Um, well, listen, uh, everybody knows it. We get lots of comments on our page in the iTunes store as well as through email, and every week I like to acknowledge the folks who leave words of encouragement and otherwise up there. But this week we're going to start with the bad before the good from. M- this is an interesting handle from MS0099RG. It's good, but no wood talk. How dare you? <laughs> I like the guy's experience, but the show does not flow as well as I would like to. Most of their humor is pretty dry, but there is some good content to be heard there. He threw us a little bone there at the I end. I know, right? Because he felt bad. He, he knew I was going to take this, take this personally. Um, and from Adman87, great show, informative and slightly irreverent. Great combo. Dr. Brewer wrote, informative and entertaining. Despite the fact that woodworking is highly visual, they make the audio-only format work well. The topics will interest woodworkers from novice to experienced. Keep the shows coming. Well, that about wraps it up this week for Shop Talk Live. We'll be back again in two weeks on March 7th for our next episode. In the meantime, show us a little love by leaving a comment on iTunes and by all means click that five-star rating. Don't forget to send your questions and comments into shoptalk@taunton.com. T-A-U-N-T-O-N dot com. You can catch the podcast via iTunes, stream it on your computer at shoptalklive.com, or catch us on iHeartRadio. Cheers, everybody. Maybe you take (laughs) your piece of lumber down to the Pine Barrens and ask it to get out of the car, (laughs) and then you put a couple slugs into it. Literally slugs. Insects. Oh, that's true. It would literally be slugs, and it would still work. Or you take it on your boat. You yeah, know, take for it a out fishing on the trip. Boat. Yep. Throw it overboard. The problem with that is that it would float inevitably, so that's, <laughs> that doesn't work so well. <laughs> <laughs>